Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. During this podcast episode, you'll hear the beginning of coverage from the recently concluded National Religious Broadcasters Convention Proclaim 19 in Anaheim, California. Playing a leading role in the event, you had David and Jason Benham, the Benham Brothers, You'll be hearing them share about engaging the culture with the truth, love, and humility of Christ. Also from First Liberty, it's Kelly Shackelford. He leads the organization which is involved in the case of a former high school football coach in Washington State who lost his job due to his practice of going to the 50-yard line for prayers after games. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, a follow-up conversation occurred recently to an earlier chat with David Curry of Open Doors, who, in his comments on the World Watch List, discussed the matter of gender persecution. Helene Fisher provides interesting and disturbing insight into how this is proliferating around the world, including the sexual assault of women. Then, we can know that God is concerned about us, spirit, soul, and body. Dana Dimitri and Robin Thompson joined me recently to discuss a health plan in which they're involved, including not only diet and exercise, but also spiritual components. Finally, you may be familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, Shelley Neese of Jerusalem Connection has composed a book that highlights the Copper Scroll. It doesn't contain scripture, but it does have information on it that certifies elements related to the Jewish presence in the land of Israel. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. National Religious Broadcasters hosts an annual convention, and the most recent event, Proclaim 19, occurred this past week at the Anaheim Convention Center in California. I had a chance to sit down with Christian leaders, authors, speakers, commentators, and more. David and Jason Benham have emceed general sessions at the event the past two years. They took some time to speak with me about how Christians can influence the culture with the truth and love of Christ. They've co-authored a book called Bold and Broken, Becoming the Bridge Between Heaven and Earth. Here now are David and Jason Benham. Well, this is David speaking, and, and Jason and I really, you know, as we travel the country and as we speak at different events and, and we're connecting with uh, various other ministries, and then, of course, we're in the marketplace, so we're in business as well, we see that um, the culture is definitely shifting, and, uh, and it's really important for Christians to engage. It's, it's important that we speak the truth and speak it in love, and that's why we wrote Bold and Broken. By bold, of course, we all know what that means, but boldness, apart from brokenness, makes a bully. And we don't want to be bullies. We don't want to step in with bad attitudes or being frustrated or angry or trying to prove our point more than love a person. But then on the other side, brokenness apart from boldness makes a bystander. And by the word broken, we mean submitted to God in humility and compassion. So we don't want to be a bully. We don't want to be a bystander. But when we're both bold and broken, now we become a bridge that connects heaven to earth. And we actually become not just praying the prayer that Christ taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are now participating in that prayer, bringing heaven to earth in a real practical way. So we wrote 28 chapters, and uh, it's all story-based about how did people in very simple, blue-collar, practical ways become bridges that connect heaven to earth. 
Well, let's talk about the content here when we look at the issues about which we as Christians are confronted every day. I'm real curious. Of course, you you guys grew up in a family where being active Christians, speaking out about the issues of the day, that was just something that that I can imagine was just very, very natural in your, your growing up years. Now, did that... Jason, did that continue into your your adult years, or did the did the HGTV thing kind of take things to a different level for you guys? Well, you know, with our dad being the leader of a massive pro-life organization, it was something that was definitely birthed in our DNA. But at the same token, we, we have experienced firsthand what it feels like to be a bully on the one side, and we know what it feels like to be a bystander on the other. Because when the HGTV, HGTV thing came to us, I remember there was like a tendency before we ever got fired, there was a tendency in us to maybe want to quiet down a little bit. Because we were uh, filming during the time when um, it was a real big debate, a hot topic about over uh, marriage. And the and, uh, Supreme Court was going to rule in favor or against or whatever. And David and I had been vocal about that, but we were we, we, we actually felt that tendency and that temptation to actually be quiet because we didn't want to ruin our opportunity for the show. But we had to overcome that, and uh, it took a rebuke from a godly um, pastor friend of ours that saw some cowardice in us. And, and that's what led us to our own brokenness to realize, look, God has called us all to stand. Now, it may not look like the way David and I stood. You know, you may be a, a second-grade teacher, and, and you standing strong may look a little different. But ultimately, all of us are required to stand and not bend. And so when the questions are asked, like, can you be uh, gay and Christian? Or is it okay to abort a baby seven months in? Is it okay for people to just have sex with whomever they want, whenever they want, whatever? When those questions are asked, it's important for you to point people to the scripture and represent the truth, regardless of whether or not that's going to offend that person. Because if you really love them, you'll talk about the boundaries that will bring their blessing. Jason and David Benham here on The Intersection. Their website address is Benham, B-E-N-H-A-M, brothers.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Kelly Shackelford, president and CEO of First Liberty, the organization which is involved in the case of a former high school football coach in Washington State, Joe Kennedy, who lost his job due to his practice of going to the 50-yard line for prayers after games. From an NRB conversation, this is Kelly Shackelford. Seven years he'd been going just by himself, uh, going to a knee and saying a 15 to 20 second prayer, just thanking God for the privilege of coaching the young men. That's how it all started uh, seven years earlier. And then there were officials there in the area that decided, well, they didn't think that the coach should be doing that. Yeah, they uh, actually, by the time we were at the end of the process, they actually sent him a letter saying that if he ever did anything while he was at work that anyone could tell was religious, he would be fired. and But he had made a pledge to God to uh, go to a knee after every game and give thanks, and he did that, and uh, they fired him. So you guys basically, I guess you took up the case even before he was yeah. dismissed, right? We did. We were helping him walk through what his rights were and uh, told him that, you know, look, no teacher, no student uh, gives up their rights at the schoolhouse gate. They have First Amendment rights to free speech. They have rights to to be who they are in their faith. And this idea that uh, we sort of have this religious cleansing that goes on where people are not allowed to be 
who they are. They're not allowed to pray silently. They're not allowed. I mean, that's just bizarre. Uh, but uh, that's what happened. We went up to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit is kind of known for being uh, one of the more hostile circuits, well, the most in the country. Uh, and uh, we've got a, a shocking ruling even for them. They said that coaches are not allowed to pray in public if anyone can see them. And, uh, and so uh, we took that to the Supreme Court. And uh, I think almost everybody in the country knows about the Coach Kennedy case now. I mean, he's as well-known as anybody I've ever seen in one of these cases. And we got a, a really uh, an unusual decision. The Supreme Court uh, denied cert, meaning they said we're not taking it up. And usually that means your case is over. But in this case, they actually attached a statement before uh, conservative justice. And they said it's just cert denied for now. We want you to go back to the trial court. There's some facts we want nailed down, which... Uh, basically are very much in our favor. And, uh, and then they said the Ninth Circuit decision uh, we found very troubling. Uh, and, in fact, they said we can't really believe that they meant what they said. Um, so that was a good sign, obviously, as well. Um, and then they did something that really sent shockwaves throughout the entire legal community across the country. Uh, there's a case that has been out there for over 30 years that has created horrible problems for the free exercise of religion. And we didn't even bring this up. They, on their own, said, by the way, um, this case they referred to as something that had done damage to religious freedom. And they said that they noticed that we hadn't gotten to the point of bringing that issue up, a free exercise in this case. And they said, uh, but we haven't been asked to review that decision yet. Basically saying, we're ready to review this 30-year-old decision that has done so much damage to religious freedom. So... Coach was given a lot of good news by that. I mean, the bad news is we still have to fight on. It's going to take some more time. we got to go back to the trial court, probably court of appeals. But they've said if we get back to the Supreme Court, this might be the case that changes 30 years of bad case law for the good for the free exercise rights of all Americans. So let me make sure I'm hearing you correctly, Kelly. This was something that the Supreme Court justices on their own basically said, you know, here's a, here's a bad ruling. From 30 years ago, what what was that case? Yeah, it's called the Smith decision, and it's a case where they said that free exercise is only protected after that opinion if the government is aiming for your religion. So if the government passes a law which looks neutral on its face and it happens to destroy your religious freedom, there's no defense. And what that did is it made really free exercise very weak. And so most claims, if, if you're in the legal community and, you, and if you watch the cases, the religious freedoms cases, most of them are free speech cases because the attorneys are realizing, well, free exercise really doesn't do much for me because it's been so you know, lessened in its impact. So I'm just going to bring a free speech claim. And so that's the first claim that reached the court, in this case, Coach Kennedy's free speech claim. Because while when he went to a knee, he was speaking and he was praying. And uh, so uh, they said, on their own, we didn't bring this up, they said, we noticed that this is a free speech claim and not a free exercise claim, that that claim hasn't gotten to us yet because they knew we had that claim. And they said, it's probably because of this Smith decision that has done so much damage to religious freedom. And they said, but we haven't been asked to review that decision yet. I mean, so it was a non-too-subtle hint (laughs) that they're ready to really open up and move back to the, the free exercise of religion and the religious freedom that our founders meant for us to have. Kelly Shackelford of First Liberty here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website first, F-I-R-S-T, liberty.org. 
This is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on the Intersection Podcast. Also in that Media Center, you can listen to or download the current episode as well as previous editions of the Intersection Podcast. It's also available on a weekly basis through iTunes. Two blogs are accessible through that homepage. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. There's also a link to video content. You can find out how content from The Meeting House program can be accessed through a variety of apps, including the Faith Radio app. That is through meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to faithradio.org. Next on this edition of The Intersection, it's Helene Fisher. She is Global Gender Persecution Specialist for Open Doors. She spoke with me about interesting and disturbing insight into how gender persecution is proliferating around the world, including the sexual assault of women. Here now is Helene Fisher. When we look at the top global trends for men and women, it becomes apparent very quickly that what is done to women is actually very difficult to see, very difficult to to keep track of, and very difficult for us to know how to do something about from the outside. So just to make that clearer, um, the top three trends this year are sexual assault, forced marriage, and rape. Uh, If we combine that with the fourth one, which is shaming or shunning, we see how that dynamic works together right away. Uh, If um, a teenage girl or a woman is targeted sexually in her society, what is done to her makes her an object of shame. And not only her, but her family as well. And um, this this is done very intentionally because of this ripple effect and because it will jeopardize her entire prospects for her life. And um, therefore, the community, her family and the community actually try to protect her from that shame and will participate in hiding it um, as a way of trying to protect her. Unfortunately, that, that causes problems all of its own. Um, and, and we can get into that. But before we do, I, another aspect that's hidden um, is the way that um, men and women are imprisoned uh, differently. If we look at this year's results, we'll see that um, uh, government imprisonment is characteristic of the um, persecution faced by men across the 50 surveyed countries in 28% of those countries. In contrast, it's incarceration by family that appears with almost exactly the same percentage, 29% for women. Now here we have a really obvious um, contrast because anybody who's put in prison by their government, we can create prisoners lists for, and as long as that community can get the word out, we can um, have prayer vigils, we can make petitions to the government, um, we, can, we can go to um, kind of international bodies and ask for their release. It's so much harder to know when a woman, um, usually a convert, this usually happens to converts, is imprisoned by her own family because she has discovered Jesus 
and she is making that choice that goes against her family or community wishes. Um, and and it's difficult to count this. It's difficult to pray for it, and it's difficult for us to really measure how much women are suffering because they have decided to follow Jesus. Tell me what you see that is being done from an open doors perspective, as well as perhaps from a USCIRF perspective or other organizations that are really trying to provide some solutions to the plight that so many of these women are facing. Well, we were very pleased that uh, this commission uh, put out a policy, a set of um, uh, policy focus uh, a couple of uh, years ago, year ago, in which they said that they were um, committing to try to introduce a resolution into the Commission on the Status of Women, recognizing that women's rights and freedom of religion are mutually reinforcing and not contradictory which means that actually if you encourage a woman's belief and if she is strengthened in her faith and that faith community will actually empower her. And if that faith community is committed to empowering the women in its midst, it can become a powerful force for positive change in the society. And that's something that Open Doors is working on. Open Doors is coming alongside the churches and with the findings from this report, we can go through and show the vulnerabilities of the church uh, in how the women are attacked. And the churches can become real champions for the women in their midst, but then for the other women around them. Because once you have a, a woman in their midst who has value because she is a child of God, then in fact all women are created as, as a reflection of God, as a child of God, and they have that inherent value. So Open Doors is empowering them, not just with a theological understanding, but also with education, literacy, access to microloans, things which really speak to the fact that they have value and they are capable and competent. They're able to provide for their children even if they've lost their husband, and they can see their children go on to have that kind of future that we always hope for for our children. Helene Fisher from Open Doors here on The Intersection. The website address is opendoorsusa.org. Next on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Dana Dimitri and Robin Thompson. They are the authors of the book, Eat, Live, Thrive, Diet, a lifestyle plan to rev up your midlife metabolism. This health plan includes not only diet and exercise, but also spiritual components. From that conversation, here are Dana Dimitri and Robin Thompson. Our whole book is addressing every part of your life. So like you said, spirit, soul, body. And one of the main parts of the book is actually the first part of the book, which we call preparation. And it's really getting your mind set in the right place to do your program. And a lot of people will skip forward to part two, but we always say go back and read part one because we have a lot of beliefs around our diet, around our life. We have thoughts around it, negative emotions. Um, and those negative emotions can really hinder us in moving forward with a healthy lifestyle plan. So what we teach in that portion of the book is how to use the renewing your mind. And we 
share with you renewing your mind whether you're making a just a positive statement affirmation and or maybe you're using scripture because a lot of those thoughts those negative thoughts are just lies that we're believing and so we address that whole mindset and um you know obviously we we use suggest scripture many times in doing that and i'm going to have Dana share a little bit more about that but then in the lifestyle plan and the the last portion of the book we talk a lot about body image how we see ourselves versus how god sees us and um so it's it's all wrapped up together and i will say bob you know i shared at the beginning of my story a little bit of struggling with bulimia for many years the true breakthrough that I had was in applying these biblical principles of you know, Romans 12, two says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I really learned what that meant biblically. And it's what changed everything for me. I was believing lies that I was out of control, that I couldn't change. I was actually simultaneously having unrelenting panic attacks, uh, partially because of the unhealthy lifestyle. I was taking diet pills and being able to go through the step-by-step kind of biblical process of identifying the lies we believe, taking our thoughts captive, which is, a you know, again, scriptural, uh, erasing and replacing those, those unhealthy lies with truth, with scripture, as Robin said, with just impactful statements that tell the truth to ourselves. And then the repetition of that, you know, we're told in the word of God to dwell on things that are good and worthy. And, and we're, we're told to uh, set our mind on things above. And so it is a daily stewardship practice of our mind, our body, soul, and spirit to take, you know, really control of this area of our life. And what's really powerful is habits are really changed from the inside out by believing the truth. It's kind of this practice of combining good actions with healthy thinking. But the way God designed our brain, our neuron pathways literally physiologically change. We can kind of squash old negative unhealthy thinking and those neuron pathways will literally atrophy. They will shrink if we don't keep feeding them. And the new pathways will actually grow physiologically. So you've got a physical dynamic of how God designed our brain where the most dominant thought wins. And then you've got the spiritual dynamic of the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So when we turn that word of God on ourselves, we can cut out the lies we believe, replace them with truth, and it changes us dynamically and permanently. It's such a powerful Mm. truth. Robin Thompson and Dana Dimitri here on The Intersection. You can find out more by visiting the website Lean Healthy Ageless. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Shelley Neese, president of the Jerusalem Connection and author of the book, The Copper Scroll Project, An Ancient Secret Fuels the Battle for the Temple Mount. In our conversation, she discussed the significance of the scroll, which is considered to be one of the Dead Sea Scrolls and provides insight into Jewish presence in the Middle East. From that conversation, this is Shelley Neese. I studied in Israel for graduate school for about three and a half years. My husband and I were both there studying, you know, just very young and out of undergraduate school from, we both are graduates from Louisiana State University. So it wasn't necessarily the natural path to go to Ben Gurion University in Beersheba, Israel after that, but that's what we did. And so I was acquainted with the Dead Sea Scrolls. My major was Middle Eastern Studies. And I mean, everyone is acquainted with the Dead Sea Scrolls to Mm -hmm. some degree. It's the most important find of the 20th century. 
and I had been to visit them in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem many times, but had somehow never heard of the Copper Scroll, which I know for a lot of your listeners, they're probably, you know, thinking they haven't either. And, and, and so that's always the first place that I start is just, you know, this isn't an insult to anyone's sort of biblical literacy or Israel education, because I hadn't heard of the Copper Scroll either, and very rarely do I meet an interviewer who has. So the Copper Scroll, though, is one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's part of the Dead Sea Scroll collection. It's very unique among all the other 900-plus manuscripts in that it's written on copper, and there is no other ancient document written on copper in general, much less among the Dead Sea Scroll Library. And it is not a book of the Bible. It's not a literary document or commentary on the book of the Bible or, you know, a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls tell us about the sect that authored the scrolls. And the Copper Scroll is none of those. It's a verbal treasure map. So what is it pointing to? Right. I'm not just being sensationalist when I say that either. You know, you're always like one Wikipedia search away from finding finding this out on your own. But it's a verbal treasure map. It's written in 12 columns. It was when it was finally unrolled, which it took three years to even figure out how to do that because copper did what copper does and it oxidized and it was very brittle to the slightest touch after being hidden in a cave for 2000 years. So, so It took three years to open, but when they did, they saw words repeated over and over, gold, silver, dig, and cubits. And and so what it is, it almost reads like an inventory of someone who hid these items, who hid these treasures, and anticipated their retrieval later on, because it doesn't seem to be written for someone in the future in a lot of ways because it's very, very specific in the way it's written. What does this have to say to, as we might say, Bible-believing Christians as well as to the world in general? Right. Well, so one thing that in the, the book really covers and settles on this is that for me, and for Jim, but but for me, I was new to this, but being able to study the Copper Scroll just brought me into that, into the land of Israel, into the history of Israel, and into the people of Israel. I already loved Israel, but I was advocating for Israel for all of the things that it was fighting currently, you know, for, you know, the war against terrorism and everything that I would think. So to be able to put me into you know, the Israel that is fighting the Babylonians at its gate, that's fighting the Romans at the gate. And, and really, this is the time period, you know, that our faith is formed, that Christianity is formed, and that Judaism has broken off into these different sects, the Essenes, the authors of the scrolls being one of those sects, and and all the words of Jesus really reflecting the tensions that we know to be going on at that time, both politically and because of Roman oppression, and also um, among each other. And so I just feel like for any, for any believer being able to dig into the history of the Bible and really study it and try and understand what was going on and, and is, is the best way to be able to understand what the Messiah was fulfilling, what Jesus was walking into. And so the Copper Scroll Project as a book just tries to paint history with this wide brush and to be able to, you know, it's not, it's not a book. It's not a dry archeological study. (laughs) This is a book about believers and about 
a story that God's hand, you know, had to be on or it wouldn't have worked out in all of the crazy ways that it did. And, um, and also just the alliances that formed between Christians and Jews who all wanted to see this, this project come into fruition. And, and all of those benefited me in my own life and in my own faith journey. And so I want them to just be a part of a short story that I share with others. Shelly Neese here on The Intersection. Learn more at Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-E-Y, Neese, N-E-E-S-E, dot com. Well, we are nearing the conclusion of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more through the programming section at faithradio.org or go to meetinghouseonline.info. There is a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand through which you could listen to or download full conversations from recent guests featured on The Intersection Podcast. You can also find out how you could access The Intersection Podcast. It's available through the Faith Radio website as well as the Faith Radio app. Plus, there are two blogs accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. There's also a link to video content. You can find out more about accessing content from the Intersection podcast and the Meeting House program through a variety of apps, including the Faith Radio app. Again, that website address, meetinghouseonline.info, or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me. This has been the Intersection podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.